podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me your host Connor Hanrity. Finally, finally we meet Macbeth. Admittedly it took rather longer for us to meet Hamlet in his play but the pace and energy of this one is so much faster that you'd certainly be forgiven for getting a bit impatient for Macbeth to arrive. And now he does, just as the witch's Aleppo charm has been completed. Macbeth's first line echoes the witch's earlier cantation, fair is foul and foul is fair. He enters in mid-conversation with Banquo, and remember we've been conditioned already to think of them as equals. Macbeth speaks first, saying, So fair and foul a day I have not seen. We likewise know that the weather is murky here in Scotland, but this line is as much about the up and down roller coaster of emotions as the military campaign continues. There's been good news and bad news from all sides, but now the hurly burly's done, and the battle is indeed lost and won. Macbeth and Banquo are en route to rejoin the forces, and Banquo asks, How far is called to Fores? It's just a casual line indicating where they're going, and Banquo's wondering how much longer they have ahead of them but he interrupts himself, having caught sight of the witches. What are these, so withered and so wild in their attire, that look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet are on it? Live you? Or are you aught that man may question? You seem to understand me, by each at once her chappy finger laying upon her skinny lips. You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so." This is a fairly rich description of what the witches can look like. Banquo says that they are withered and wild in their attire. So they're dishevelled, probably dirty, unkempt and wild. Everything opposite to the traditional expectations of a woman. He says they look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet they're on it. If they're not natural, they could well be supernatural. And as Banquo will soon tell us, supernatural entities should not be approached without great caution. So he asks if they are alive, since, obviously, the alternative is that they are not, or no longer. He wonders if these figures are aught that man may question. Can they understand him? And indeed, if he questions them, will they answer? The witches respond only with a gesture, putting their fingers to their lips. Banquo acknowledges that by doing so they seem to be showing that yes, they do understand him, by each at once her chappy finger laying upon her skinny lips. These are wizened, withered women. Their fingers are chapped, or chappy, and their lips are thin. Banquo also says they have beards, which makes him wonder if they are women at all. This is a further expansion of all these contradictions we keep hearing. The day is fair and foul. They look like they don't come from earth, and yet here they are on it. They might be alive, but they might not, and while they should be women, they have beards. There's a fabulous essay about interpreting bearded women that I will include in the show notes, more than you ever knew you needed to know about this phenomenon. Suffice to say, Shakespeare could be implying a few bristles of hair on their chins, or full-on beards that would definitely confuse the onlooker. But bear in mind... This was already a weird sight, since, in the original production at least, these witches would have been played by men. And, if they had beards, perhaps they were adult men, rather than boy players. 
indeed, hearkening back to Hamlet, there is that moment when the players arrive and Hamlet recognises that one of the boy players, as was, is now valanced with a beard on his face. So there's any number of interpretations or meta-theatrical things that could have been going on. Macbeth has seen these bearded ladies now and finishes Banquo's line with a question. Speak, if you can. What are you? He echoes Banquo's curiosity, wondering if they'll answer at all, but unlike Banquo, he has no qualms about addressing them so directly. The witches respond, first, second and third, in turn. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glams. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. All hail, Macbeth. Thou shalt be king hereafter. Now, here's where a really close reading pays off. As I'm sure you remember, in both Richard II and in Henry VI, Part Three, troubled men worry that all hail is exactly what Judas said to Christ before he betrayed him. And the first thing that these witches say to Macbeth? All hail. Hail to thee, Thane of Glams, says the first. This makes sense, since Macbeth is by birth the Thane of Glams. The second says, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. Now, we in the audience know that he's just been awarded that title by the king, but Macbeth himself does not know. So this is a surprise. And how does the witch know? Stranger still, the third of them says, All hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. This little line is one of the most important in the play. The third witch activates something very deep and very hidden in Macbeth. She tells him that he will be king, and in so doing, she acknowledges a desire that he's quite possibly never shared with anyone before. It's shocking, and Banquo sees this shock. Good sir, why do you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? Banquo is proving himself a master of alliteration. His lines are full of it. We get another echo of fair and foul here, but this time it's fear and fair. He's asking why Macbeth should appear so scared or shocked by a prediction that sounds pretty good. Macbeth doesn't answer, so Banquo addresses the witches himself. In the name of truth... Are ye fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly ye show? My noble partner, you greet with present grace and great prediction of noble having and of royal hope, that he seems wrapped withal. To me you speak not. If you can look into the seeds of time, and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favours nor your hate. Banquo is smart and conjures the witches in the name of truth to answer him, the hope being that this will bind them to be honest with him, since witches were notorious tricksters. He wants to know if they are supernatural, fantastical, or if they really are just strange women, which outwardly they show or appear to be. They have greeted Macbeth with present grace and great prediction of noble having and of royal hope. Some of what they've said is already true, present grace and noble having, he is the Thane of Glams, and some of it sounds like a very good future. The royal hope is that Macbeth will become king, which in itself is a great prediction. Macbeth is so startled by this that he hasn't spoken. Banquo describes him as wrapped withal. Now, wrapped, or a PT, of course implies being consumed or entranced, which makes total sense, but it also sounds very much like wrapped, 
W-R-A-P-P-E-D, as in a robe or a scarf. There are enough images of clothing and robes and garments in this play that my English teacher made us write an essay on the theme for the leading cert, and I wish I'd spotted this one at the time. Macbeth is literally wrapped up in the idea of becoming king, but Banquo is miffed that the witches have said nothing to him. Another characteristic of a witch was that she could tell the future, and so Banquo asks the three that if they can look into the seeds of time and see which grain might grow and which might not, that they should speak to him. This imagery of seeds growing, which we can expand into bearing children and even a man's lineage, is heavily ironic, since King James, Banquo's purported descendant, was sitting watching the play. Banquo is defiant. He tells the witches that he's not afraid of them, and he's not about to beg for their favours either. But the three respond nonetheless. Hail, hail, hail. Lesser than Macbeth and greater, not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. Interestingly, Banquo doesn't get the all hail, just hail. Perhaps appropriate, since, as the witches say, he's lesser than Macbeth, so of course his salutation is lessened. But, they continue, he's also greater, not so happy, yet much happier. And the third witch, the one who does seem to be the one who tells the future, says he shall beget kings, even if he isn't one himself. So, Macbeth will be king, but Banquo's descendants will be kings. It's curiously good news for both of them. Macbeth will get the crown, and Banquo gets to be happy, whatever happy might mean. So the witches continue, all hail Macbeth and Banquo, Banquo and Macbeth, all hail. They balance their addresses here, this time the all hail is to both of them, since they both have kingly futures ahead of them. This sounds almost like a goodbye, too, and so Macbeth, finally breaking from his reverie, speaks again. Stay, you imperfect speakers, tell me more. By Sinal's death I know I am Thane of Glams, but how of Cawdor? The Thane of Cawdor lives, a prosperous gentleman, and to be king stands not within the prospect of belief, no more than to be Cawdor. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, or why, upon this blasted heath, you stop our way with such prophetic greeting. Speak, I charge you. Macbeth calls the witches imperfect speakers, because they haven't told him the whole story. In fact, they haven't answered any questions, instead merely volunteering this unsolicited fortune-telling. And of course, Macbeth wants to know more. Sinal, or Sinal, or in some texts Finnel, but that's probably because the S and an F used to look the same, was Macbeth's father, and by his death the hereditary title of Thane of Glams passed to him. So far, so clear. But he has to point out, the Thane of Cawdor lives, and is a prosperous gentleman. So if he's rich and alive, there's no reason for his title to be taken from him. This is further proof, I think, that Ross's speech in the previous scene should be about Macduff. If it was Macbeth that had fought in that battle, he'd know well that Cawdor had been proved a traitor and is anything but a gentleman. And as for becoming king, that just seems preposterous. It stands not within the prospect of belief, no more than to be Cawdor. So what the witches are saying sounds like pure fantasy to him. To us in the audience, it's rather more seductive, since we know already that he is the Thane of Cawdor. So now the bell has been rung, and we are presumably going to see him become king. 
But Macbeth knows none of this, and quite rightly, he wants to know how they know. He is very wise to question from whence they owe this strange intelligence, or indeed why they've shown up here on this blasted heath to stop their way with such prophetic greeting. The image of the blasted heath is rich. He could just mean it's a bare, miserable patch of land, but it also gives a strong sense that even the place is cursed. He said his piece, but the witches don't really respond to questions, do they? Their first gesture was to put their fingers to their lips, and now, in an even more frustrating response, they vanish. Banquo and Macbeth are stunned by this, but will save what they have to say for our next encounter. I must confess that I am enjoying this play far more than I had anticipated, and I sincerely hope that you are too. It's well over a decade since I've spent any real time with it, and it's tremendous fun getting to dive this deeply into it. I hope you've subscribed so that you'll never miss an episode, and that you're getting back into the rhythm of tuning in once a week, just as I am in terms of writing and recording it. There's plenty of extra material coming together in the show notes, which are available, as ever, on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you very much for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.